everyone and welcome to the Feminist Lens podcast brought to you by Women for Wanawake. Today we have a very special guest and a woman we are very inspired by, Dr. Helen Pankhurst, CBE, who is the granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst and granddaughter of Sylvia Pankhurst, leaders of the British suffragette movement. She has extensive media experience, including national and international radio and print interviews, and was involved in the opening ceremony of the 2012 London Olympics and the 2015 film Suffragette. The Sunday before the International Women's Day each year, Helen leads an annual march in London, joined by the Olympic suffragettes, hashtag March for Women. She's also a senior advisor to Care International, working in the UK and Ethiopia. She's a trustee of ActionAid and WSUP, a visiting senior fellow at LSE and a visiting professor at Manchester Metropolitan University. We are so happy to be speaking with you today, Helen. Um, you and your family have devoted your life to supporting, empowering, defending and fighting for women to be equal and free. And we're so grateful for you for that. It's also a very timely moment to be speaking with you as just as we just had International Women's Rights Day last week. And unfortunately, the murders of Sarah Everard in Clapham and, blessing, and blessings Olusujan in Sussex, both cases illustrate just how endangered women's lives are and how much more work needs to be done to protect women. Exactly. When this happens, it unleashes an overwhelming level of grief in so many across our country. We feel it, we organise and we unite. Many of us have taken to the streets and have organised vigils across the country, lighting candles, protesting outside Parliament, outside the Met. But unfortunately, when trying to pay our respects peacefully, we have been met with contempt and disproportionate force. This makes us think about the suffragettes and what they must have been through for years. The manhandling by the police. Yes, a lot has changed since then, but we still have so much to do. So this is very relevant <laughs> to who we're speaking to. Let's dive straight in. Um, so as Paris said, like your great grandmother who devoted her life to fight for equality, what inspired you to also devote your life to achieve gender equality and women's rights causes? So, you know, having that Pankhurst surname being directly related to Emmeline and Sylvia, it was inevitable, wasn't it, that uh, the causes that they so represent would be important to me. Um, I grew up knowing that that surname was important and linked to um, the issue of women's rights and the suffragette cause. I also grew up in Ethiopia and that was equally important. So I would say the two dominant factors that have really steered me in life have been those two, has been this feminist um, heritage, the, the, the link, the, um, that sense of common cause with uh, ancestors that were so well known for that issue, and then growing up in Ethiopia and therefore the international aspect of that and uh, seeing very early on the differences and the commonalities in terms of women's experiences. Great, thank you. So I really want to talk to you about Ethiopia because I've been there, uh, I think 2019. I went on a solo trip there after a monitoring visit of my previous role um, in Uganda. And I love that country. If I could move there, I really would. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's one of the most fascinating and wonderful places I've ever visited. They're so rich in culture and they've protected their culture. I love the way that they've not assimilated like the rest of Africa and trying to be more westernized. Um, delicious food, love the food in Jera beautiful people. Um, yeah, so can you talk a little bit more about how your upbringing in Ethiopia has shaped who you are today as a British woman, having that, two, you know, those two lenses and 
And what is it that inspired you to do international development work? Because yeah, you could have chosen anything. I know kind of probably you were set up to do, <laughs> to do what you do, but yeah. Um, so interestingly, I studied economics as my first degree. Um, and then I went on to do a PhD and the PhD was a study in Ethiopia. It was in the sociology and the politics departments cross-disciplinary. Um, and at the time in Ethiopia, there was a villagization process, which was the government's idea to move everybody into straight villages in the um, valleys uh, away from their homesteads their, uh, on their farming land. And this was a big thing at the time, and I was going to study this. And what very quickly happened is, A, I realized that everybody hated the villagization. And if I was going to spend a whole year talking to them about something that they hated, they wouldn't be very happy, nor would I. Um, and B, I became more and more interested in the relationship between those with power and those without power, namely the relationship between the state and the, the farming community and the relationship between men and women. And in both cases, looking at how those with less power still managed to operate and um, circumvent the structures that gave them limited autonomy. Um, so that was my uh, PhD. And then when I started work, um, it, for me, it was clear that it was going to be an international development. I don't think it was quite as clear that the uh, women's angle would be at the forefront. That kind of came gradually. So the more I work, the more relevant it seemed to bring a women's lens to any development intervention, be it integrated rural development, be it WASH initiatives, be it credit schemes, that unless you address gender issues, you were really ignoring the major factor around poverty and vulnerability. Um, and then I think the other factor that came into play was as I was negotiating for my own career, um, this issue of working on feminism and on international development, you know, I got married, I had kids, I um, felt also integrated within the UK. Um, so always a little bit in the UK, a little bit in Ethiopia, and then more and more feeling I also needed to work in the UK. So I now, I mean, half my work at least is looking at um, gender issues in the UK as well as globally. And I think that local to global is a really important factor in anything. It is in, in environmental issues, for example, but also uh, I think it's so just a much more powerful position to be in and a more thoughtful position to be in. That's really, really interesting. Thank you so much for that summary, um, Helen, especially because I, I actually haven't been, I've never been to Ethiopia and I'm really interested to know more. And I am currently also working actually um, um, for an international environmental organization and we've been focusing a lot on the importance of putting gender equality and, uh, and gender analysis at the focal point of all of the research threads throughout, which is really, really good that this is happening now um and I wanted to know because also in terms of the because the UN's goals this is again more that I'm learning is so SDG 5 I, I would say that without gender equality we won't be able to essentially solve any of the crises that we have today um so whilst it is SDG 5 I would argue that maybe it should just it should thread throughout um rather than just be its own separate SDG um but um, yeah, Helen, we you both, by the way, I think you need both. Yeah. I think you need to mainstream gender issues and you need to have a specific focus because you catch some factors when you've just got that specific thing. And then everything else also needs to be mainstreamed. 
Helen, our next question is, and this is kind of bringing you back to the UK now, um, but again, it applies globally too. Um, as we saw this weekend with Reclaim the Streets, Reclaim These Streets, um, direct reaction, obviously, to the passing of Sarah Everard, um, who was allegedly murdered by a police officer, um, and violence almost erupted at these at the vigil in Clapham Common. And this was very disturbing to see, um, as I'm sure many share our disturbance. Me and Paris were very, very shocked by this. A lot of us had also gone. And what, but with all these vigils and all these protests, a lot of them have been led by women when it comes to raising awareness against violence against women. But really, and I'm rambling now, so I should just got straight there, but really, is it not men who should be organizing these vigils and these protests when it is them who are instigating the violence? Um, so what are your thoughts on men and their role in ending inequality for women, especially violence against women? I think men have a pivotal role, a really, really important one. Um, so I... I'm particularly comfortable when we have men in feminist spaces, uh, conscious and uh, proud to be feminists and uh, aware of what that means. I do think, however, that the issue of leadership of feminist spaces should be carefully negotiated and that women's voices need to be at the forefront of that. Um, and that's for issues to do with you know who normally speaks, who's normally silent, who's conditioned to have the first voice. I mean, there's nothing that drives me more up the wall than when I am giving a talk on gender issues and the first person to put their hand and expect to speak being a man. I, I want to hear men's voices, but I don't, I want also for them to listen. And it's counterintuitive sometimes for men to listen, for women to be the ones to speak up first. Yeah, I think um, I agree with that actually. And I, and I also think that men need to challenge other men yeah. in their social groups who say very derogatory things. I can't remember who I was having a discussion with the other day and I said to them, you know, have you talked to your friends about this? Um, I actually, it's my stepsister's partner. And I said, cause he said he's got some friends who you know, say really bad things that work and place or just generally. And I said, do you, do you challenge him? Cause he's got a partner and a, and a daughter. And he's like, no, I don't. And I was like, but we need you to do that. Like, you know, you need to say to your friend, come on, mate, that's irrelevant. You know, that's completely inappropriate. Because I feel unless those conversations are also targeted, like it's like somebody saying something racist, you're not going to allow someone to call your friends. So it's the same thing. We need to treat it. I think men need to treat it the same way. Yeah, otherwise and there's this concept of active allyship, isn't there, that men as allies need to not just be quiet, but if they see other men behaving in a certain way, saying things, challenging it there and then. Uh, there's also, and uh, there's a really good little video that was produced quite a while ago now called Did Dear Daddy. I highly recommend people looking at that. And it's, it tells just that story of the dangers of men not, not addressing the unacceptable behavior of other men. Mm. It's interesting you say that, Helen, because my my dad, um, whilst this was all happening this weekend and those images of the women, he was really, really triggered and really, really upset um, by all of this. And he's really worried about me, but not just me, but all women as well. And um, I would be really interested to listen to and know more about Dear Daddy, because there are I think the role that fathers have um, is a very powerful one. 
Um, if it wasn't for my dad, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. If it wasn't for his very, very positive, like feminist views and pushing me to play football and, and do whatever I wanted to do. Um, so I think it's really important to highlight that. And then also father figures, if you don't have a father as well, having those father, mother, whatever, parental figures in your life, it's really important. Yeah, and likewise, the role of mothers in how they shape their sons, mm. not just their daughters in terms of feminism. Critical that we look at this in the round. Completely. Oh my God, that is a really good point, which we haven't really discussed much of, but I do think that um, the, what little boys see, the interactions between men and women in their families does really shape their attitude. So like I know my little cousins too, there's a boy and girl in Kenya, and, their mom and dad raised them that they can both achieve what they want to achieve and you must respect your sister and you must respect your brother and you know and I think both of them will grow up hopefully to be very well-rounded people um but if you have if they if mom and dad interacted very badly to each other and with other people you know men and women around them then you know that will shape I mean you know you can only try you can't it doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect you know as a mother like you can only try and raise your kid the best way society is going to change some of the things that you've <laughs> you've done you work hard to shape them but it's a good start and schools I think yeah absolutely and actually I mean I've talked to a number of um, really strong feminists who say they are much more comfortable being strong feminists in the public sphere or at work mm. and yet at home they say and you know I default to gender stereotypes I do all the cooking or I don't challenge my husband this that and the other or just it's just a quieter life if I don't do this that so and yet you know it's in those domestic spheres that so much of this gender stereotyping happens so I think you know without saying everybody can be you know super uh, achievers in all of this questioning our own approaches and looking and being reflective about when we perpetuate those and when we can say to each other and to ourselves in our own families hang on you know we can do better than this I think those changes at in the home are massive massive in terms of the impact that they can have yeah especially now during Covid because obviously we're all at home and, and we know that domestic violence has gone through the roof so I feel so bad for these poor children who are seeing these things being played out and and it's been a what a year now nearly we've been home so that's going to be quite entrenched in someone's head you know but hopefully something can be done um out in schools then in that respect um so speaking of last week which oh really has saddened me it's actually because really, i normally like to go for walks during lunchtime when i'm working from home but now i'm scared i haven't gone for a walk since i heard what happened to sarah and blessings as well um but yeah so last week was bittersweet because what started off was a very positive week with international women's day celebrating women and the important work that's been done to emancipate us ended very negatively when two women lost their lives in a very cruel way so sarah everard which everybody knows about was kidnapped and again we'll say allegedly because it's not been confirmed confirmed yet but kidnapped and murdered by a serving police officer and then blessings Olusujun, who i didn't even know about um was found dead on a beach in sussex and that Obviously, race comes into why we don't know about blessing. Um, um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, and have you been able to reconcile the two? I mean, I think your last point about the difference in visibility of Sarah and uh, blessings is a really, really important one. You know, why is it that some, some victims are more visible than others? And um, what can we do to, to stop that from happening? 
um, I think the point about the ups and downs is very much what we have to face, you know, as feminist campaigners, one minute you think you're getting somewhere and the next minute you just can't believe what you're hearing and seeing. It's never been a straight line towards progress. You know, there are the ups and downs. The analogy I've um, often used is that of an elastic band that you're, you're stretching the elastic band and you never know when it's going to go back. And it often does go back. And when it goes back, it often goes back with a vengeance. It doesn't just go back a bit, really. Um, so the, the epitome of that, I think, has been this week. And yet we resist and yet we march on. And also, I think even in the most horrific moments, or maybe even those very horrific moments are opportunities. So if you look at the fact that by coincidence, the uh, there was a number of legislations that are critical uh, right now that have an effect on um, both on protest, the right to protest and on violence, and whether that can be used to ramp up uh, improved policies or challenge um, policies. I think that, that there are moments like that that you need to grasp hope, hope grasp, grasp the hand of. Um, and then a few other thoughts that I had on this, which is that the politicization of the Sarah um, attack has been really interesting in that there have been conversations such as, well, it's men that need to stay at home, not women that need to be scared and stay at home. So looking at whose agency we're focusing on in a different way from my memory of how the media and how social media and how people have related to this from the past, it felt it feels that much more strong and angry and political and uh, not just about this particular problem, but what it is saying about society more generally. And I, I've taken comfort in some of that. Well, it's interesting you say that, Helen, because I was thinking the same in the sense that I feel like so we shouldn't, it's, 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 it is an emotional and it is, and can be, it's can be hard to politicize someone's death and this is happening right now, um, but I and and I and I feel and I feel so much for Sarah's family. But I hope that there is some part of of them that feel liberated and excited that there are now all these women, all these men coming together. And I and I say men as well because, as you said, what is the difference to now to all the previous women that have died? What is the difference? What can we do differently to stop and save lives now? And I think that one thing that we can do differently is get men involved and not us just get men involved, but men think it's not them. It is, this is something that is for how we assist gender, whatever gendered man. Um, this is something that is really concerning and I have to do more. Maybe I should be the one to organize the vigil. Maybe I should be the one to help my sister, friend, partner, neighbor organize because 90% or more of violence against women is by men. So I hope that this is a watershed moment and something can change now because it's been going on for too long. And I think also what makes Sarah Everett's case quite unique as well was is the police officer that is allegedly alleged to have murdered her. Um, and I think that is, it's not ironic because we know with police brutality towards, I mean, it's not, it's not, I'm not gonna go into it too much, but it is, 
I think also as Paris said, like also why hasn't blessings death been brought to the yeah. fore? And so many young women of color that have been gone missing. And it's there's all these topics that we now have to really, really sort out together and we can only do it together. Yeah, yeah, totally. And as you said, you know, the fact that it is the police, which is seen to be such a male dominated. And, and again, you, you started off all of this with the parallels with the suffragette where it was women against the police, male police. Um, the parallels with that, the parallels with Black Lives Matter and police brutality um, from a race perspective, all of these things looked at together might be you know, part of the reasons why um, this is this feels so political and also you know, you know my heart goes out to Sarah and Blessing's families uh, and yet I can't help feeling if this was me if this was me dying and I had three options one was nobody cared the other was just the family cared and they cared about the loss of my life and the third was the family life, um, they, people cared about that. But as a consequence of my death, something has changed. I know where my vote would be, what I would hope. So I just hope that these two um, horrific deaths um, are not in vain. And just before Nina asks you the next question, just want to say, what do you think your grandparents would say now? I mean, obviously, you know, you're not, just, just knowing them and, and the work that they've done and what do you think they would say? Because this is, I mean, all the work that they've done, we're kind of going back, I feel, even with race politics, we're kind of, I wonder what Martin Luther King or Malcolm X would say when we've got George Floyd, it's just shocking, but what would yeah. you say? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they would be saying one step forwards, two step backwards on some of this. Um, I, I wrote a book to, to the, we, I wrote a book wanting to think about how far we had got in the last hundred years since women, some women got the vote. And, um, assessing my sense of how far we'd got, but also very much what they would think if they were here. And in it, I divide up by chapter and I then ask the question of by chapter. So first is looking at politics, how far have we got in politics? And is it zero, no change? Is it five, we've got equality or is it somewhere in between? And you end up thinking, okay, it's somewhere in between. And then I look at economic realities. How far have women's lives changed economically? Is it zero, is it five? And you end somewhere in between. And then I do that for a number of different issues. So culture, violence against women, et cetera, et cetera. And the summary is in no, none of those examples have we got there. In none of them overall, have we not got um, better at all? There's generally some positivity. Generally, it goes forwards and backwards. It's not a straight line. There are differences. And I have argued that one of the worst is actually the violence against women, that actually the, there's been the least progress in that area. If you look at the experience of women, the fact that every single woman and girl in the world has some kind of curfew around where she goes and what time she goes, et cetera, because of a concern of uh, violence, you know, that that is a global factor still. Um, and then also a sense that violence infects everything else. It infects politics. It infects the economic world, the world of work. It affects the world at home. It affects the cultural world that we're in. Look at all the books and all the films that we watch and everything, which is all, you know, 90% of it, I might be exaggerating, 80% of it is premised on the issue of, um, of violence against women and women as victims. So, you know, with all of that, just to say that there's still so much to be done and so much that every single person has to take responsibility for as well, that we we can't just let somebody else sort this out. It's not like the politicians are going to sort this out. This is us. It's, it's on us. 
And Helen, is that so your book that you were speaking about just now? Is it is this the book Deeds Not Words? Yeah. 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 Thank you. We'll put that in the show notes as well. If people are interested in getting it. Um, I know I am. Um, so <laughs> just it's just, as you said, violence against women and girls. It really if we if we were to eliminate that, everything else would be a lot easier. So we've really, really got to do as much as we can. Um, so thank you, Helen. Um, so the next question is a bit about what you're doing at the moment. Um, so as senior advisor to Care International, for those who don't know about the, the work that you do at Care International. Yeah, there's so much I could say. Let me uh, try and summarize that there's the care work and there's other things that I'm doing as well. So within care work, there's the Care Ethiopia. And uh, one project that we're just starting is looking at menstrual health, menstrual hygiene and health, uh, working with schoolgirls. We're just about to start this in uh, one large uh, town and it will be working with the girls and the communities themselves in terms of awareness. So one pillar is around awareness raising, working with media, et cetera. One pillar is around the product availability, what's available, where, um, what options. And then the third is around better infrastructure. So uh, water and sanitation provision in the schools. So that's an example of one project. Um, another um, I worked on, which is recently finished is in a different part of um, Ethiopia. And it was looking, working with 10 to 14 year old girls, um, encouraging them to stay at school, working in small clubs, small uh, groups so that they felt that they could challenge uh, early marriage and um, the exiting from school. Um, and there was a number of other projects working on, with, with them on that. And then the third one is working with the Ministry of Women, Youth and Children uh, to look at their internal culture as well as their policies. So the policies that they use um, to uh, influence government decisions more generally, but it's pointless having that if your own organization um, is not uh, gender sensitive or trained or comfortable and a, and a lot of men working in these organizations. Um, so to encourage their uh, ability um, to speak about these issues and um, to, to live them. So those are some examples of the care work. And then I also work for uh, Care UK on some awareness raisings and advocacy type work here. And one of those recently was the March for Women, which is an annual, normally a real march on the Sunday before or on International Women's Day. And this year we had to do it all through social media. And the um, focus this year was on the sense that when there are crises, women are often disproportionately affected and yet their voice are not there, is not there in policy making. And we looked at three forms of crisis. One was COVID, the other was the environmental crisis and the third is humanitarian one. And if you look at each of those, they're very distinct ways in which women are affected and policy often, if it's not through a gendered lens, does not uh, address that. So we were campaigning on that issue and demanding of um, government and of MPs to give more attention to these issues, particularly with the 7 and with COP26 being around the corner and the government needing to show leadership on that area. And then I'm also involved in through care um, in something called the Centenary Action Group, which is a campaigning coalition uh, with many others involved as well to look at what the constraints are for women in the political space. So constraints like violence, like the system itself and economic constraints to try and address that and encourage and make it easier for women to be parliamentarians and in policy making more generally. 
So that's another um, hat that I have. And there's some others, but I think I better stop there. <laughs> sounds like, yeah, you do a lot. And, and it sounds really fun. I know that you're tackling quite sad things, but I think it's good that rather than just complaining about it actually doing something and meeting the people and you know listening to them and what they want to do um so just before we go to the next question what's been the most um what do you love most about your job um and then what do you what do you find really frustrating um so interesting that you said fun because my personal motto is fun and purpose yeah and I really think that's the way forward. I think that if you do something that you think is makes an impact, but you also are protected in a way um, from some of the negativity by having fun, by enjoying it, by really um, being positive about it, it's that balance that can be really effective. And I suppose with my job, it's being able to do a lot of that. It's the fact that it's so diverse as well. And I work the equivalent of four days a week for care. And then I've got one day where I do some stuff in Manchester. So I'm involved with uh, work there and also with um, Suffolk and the University of Suffolk. So having a, a range of different uh, interests, different networks. I get to meet the most amazing people through these different local to global uh, sets of people. Um, frustrating, probably that there's too much to do, too little time, uh, never knowing whether I'm not giving, whether I'm rushing some things, not going into detail enough. That's probably the main one. And then probably also the fact that it would be so nice, would it not, to be able to see improvements year in, year out. And we just usually can't say that that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I kind of guess that you would say about the the frustration being, yeah, just not enough. There's some that when you when you put out one fire, there's another fire. Um, so it's, it's that kind of balancing act. Um, but also just when you're talking, just to highlight that, obviously, I think women are amazing because I'm one. But the fact that as women, you, you know, you've got all these jobs and you've got children and you've got a family and you're still able to do it all in the five days. I think, um, you know, and having a mum like you, who's always done this, that, this, that, very busy, but never, ever saw her complain, never saw her angry, never saw her. Um, and that's inspired me. And I know Nina's mum's the same for us to do this. Yep. We, have jobs as well. <laughs> we have paid jobs and then we're doing this. And it's like, you can do it all if you want to. Um, but also you can be upset and frustrated about it sometimes too. Yeah. Um. Women often don't take the credit. I think mums are so good at being silent over the things that they do so well by literally linking up a whole family and doing so much and then not, you know, not singing in their own phrases. But I think that's why I often forget to like think how amazing my own mum is, but it's because she just, she's so silent in her own greatness. Yeah. I think uh, women being silent in their own greatness is a, is a theme. I think I love the words. That's great. Um, okay, so the next one, it's, it's a little bit about um, achieving full gender equality. So what do you believe is the biggest barrier? I know we've talked a little bit about this, about violence and um, obviously lack of women in, in big roles. Um, but what do you think is the biggest barrier in achieving full gender equality? And do you ever think that we will achieve full gender equality? I do think that fundamentally, if every organization took responsibility for ensuring equality and diversity, that would solve everything. And I, I'm not just I'm mentioning diversity explicitly because it's not going to solve any problem if it's just white women of a certain class that are taking up all the positions, you know, 50 percent of the positions. It has to be about diversity. And as soon as we have that, as soon as we have 
a representation that echoes the organization, you know, who, who that organization or that government or whatever uh, unit we're talking about. As soon as that happens, and there is a proper representation, then interests get taken into account and you don't have this myopia and blindness to the reality on the ground. Um, so fundamentally, that is the solution to me, you know, 50-50 uh, parliament, uh, ensuring um, uh, companies also have that uh, breadth, uh, any professors have that diversity, just all institutions. If we had that, that would be such a more interesting, better world to live in. Yeah, I agree. Um, but uh, what I find with that um, is that some people they don't really understand how beneficial this is for everybody so yeah. which is what Nina's going to ask you a question about benefits to everybody environment and women but people don't realize that actually if we're all equal if your neighbor's not hungry they won't steal from you you know you won't have crime in your like it's just it's like duh you know but people don't get it because then they're like why 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 should we have more black people in, in the office or why should we have more women or why should we have more young people you know why why are we um but the thing is, because we're all going to live a much better life if we all have what we should have to live. But again, it's really hard to translate that. If, you've, if you're living in a really nice place and a nice, you know, some people, not everybody, but some people in good, good positions don't care. And then the people that are in bad positions just feel so dis disfranchised. They're just kind of yeah. like... Give up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would say it's like a multi-pronged approach. I think we all need to make change ourselves personally. Um, but I think definitely privilege does come into it and the position that you are born into in society in the sense that if you have two parents or you have food on your plate as soon as you're born, I think that changes how you can basically help and the extent to which you can help. Um, so I think right now there is the UN's... Um, status on the commission of women going going on currently over the next two weeks which is very important um and that's collective action working together but helen as you said too if every single organization put gender equality at the center of what they did made sure that they, that every board is representative then we'd be able to get to generation equality gender equality so much quicker so we really need to speed up <laughs> we need to speed no, up it's uh, taking too long it's taking too long and it seems you know it's a, it is a duh, you know, I mean, honestly, the fact that we're still having to demand this, it just seems so bizarre. There's still the fact that we're still having to justify the benefits of this. And yet we do. We do need to keep making the case. We need to keep pushing, demanding, because we're just way off from being there. I mean, the, the percentage of cabinet members, I, I think it's 21% of the cabinet is, is female. So, really? Yeah. Really? It's yeah. ridiculous, but there is a positive. 51% of the Labour Party is women, and it's one of the most um, representative political parties right now. So I think if we were to get, <laughs> this is my personal opinion, a Labour government, but no, I think it's, we just need representation across all politics, don't we? And that's just, just yeah. talking about the UK, but globally, actually, Helen, you might know this. Um, globally, what percentage of women are heads of state across the world? It's know? tiny. It's tiny. Yeah. I don't know what. Percentages. I also know that it's only something like three countries that have an equal uh, parliament where there's at least 50% of women mm. in parliament. Yeah, I think Rwanda's one of them. Yeah, Rwanda's the top, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that it's something like it's a country in Africa and it's a country in South America. It's, it's not, um, you know, it's not Norway and Denmark that are at the top of the list. It's, uh, it's Rwanda and 
I think uh, Cuba is one of them as well, and maybe Bolivia or. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because we had um, someone on the podcast before talk about um, two COVID-19 experts, both working in health. And they were saying that whilst New Zealand, amazing, of course, Jacinda Ardern, she's great. But it's not Jacinda Ardern. It's actually the society and their views towards women. Um, mm. That is the reason why they were had such a great response to COVID-19 because of more gender equal society. Um, so this feeds quite nicely onto the next question, which again is a kind of a global response um, which we always need for gender equality. That's the only way to achieve it. So Catherine Wilkinson, she's an American writer, environmentalist and vice president at Project Drawn Down. She quotes, she has said many times, if we really want to address climate change, we need to make gender equality a reality and that empowering women and girls can help stop global warming. Firstly, what are your thoughts on that statement? And secondly, through our work, through your your work at WaterAid and Farm Africa, how interlinked would you say the environment and women rights are? Uh, totally agree. And we, in fact, last year um, the March for Women's theme was uh, gender justice, climate justice. It was looking at the relationship between the two, um, and there are so many examples in which you can see that unless you bring a gendered lens to the climate analysis. Um, you won't get anywhere. The link between climate and uh, poverty and economic and um, uh, lack of education and uh, violence, all of these, all of these factors that we've talked about are actually so intricately linked. Um, and, uh, and actually also interestingly, some of the opposition to uh, the way we do things now in terms of the unsustainability has come from women's voices. I mean, Greta Thunberg is, comes to mind, but not just her, you know, from in Kenya, there was Wangari Mathai there. Globally, there've been a lot of women in these spaces, but usually not in the political spaces of power, but in the opposition to the status quo. Um, and if we had those same people with significant power, you know, as heads of um, government, et cetera, as heads, heads of um, COP26 negotiations, rather than initially we had none in the UK, and I think now there's one, um, the story would be very different. Yeah, I think um, I think when I was reading something about Catherine Wilkinson, she said that, which I didn't realise, but more women are doing like frontline work, like overseas, like in Asia and, and, um, and Africa. So they're like the farmers. So hence why they're going to talk about environmental issues because it does affect their livelihood. And obviously, um, just yeah, basically everything they do, which I found interesting because I, I didn't know that. I only knew that in India when I worked there that all the women seemed to work uh, in the village that I was working in, in the forest I was working in, actually, um, and the, the men. And I found that quite bizarre because in Kenya, where I'm from, it's like mostly it's the men that go out in the farm and the women stay at home. I don't know. So because so the next question is about this. So it's kind of having worked in Africa and the UK. So A, again, about the, the environment work, but also are there similarities and differences have you found about, you know, gender? Yeah, um, I mean, so c coming back to that kind of environmental point that you've just made, I think different farming systems have men and women uh, working in different ways. So 
some societies it tends to be women who are more involved in subsistence agriculture and others it's men and sometimes it's a combination of both it depends you know whether it's rice or wheat or or whatever whether it's plow plow economy traditionally or hoe economy there's a lot around all of that um but whatever the pattern um you know most societies have been uh, male dominated and therefore the relationship with nature in terms of the the, the roles and uh, responsibilities have been gendered and have given men more power usually than women, even in agricultural settings. Not always, there are ex uh, exceptions. Um, what have I seen as uh, common and, um, and separate? If we come back to that issue of, you know, how far have women got in politics, you can look at different, different countries and see the extent to which um, some countries are doing better than others and it's not obvious so it's not like the UK we just gave the example the UK is worse in terms of proportion of women than um, than uh, Rwanda or than Ethiopia for that matter um, but there is also a question about the strength of the political systems as well so take Rwanda and Ethiopia you could argue that the parliaments in those countries actually have less power than the leader and although it seems like relatively egalitarian in terms of the parliament in Rwanda, in fact, it is one, one person led uh, country. So uh, I think what I'm saying is encouraging a deeper, the mm. statistics at one level are telling you one thing, but the more you go into it, the more complex the story really is. Mm. Um, and then if we look at economically, the difference between uh, the UK and some developing countries, again, um, there are examples where the UK is doing better, but many where um, developing countries have actually achieved uh, greater uh, equality. I mean, my example on this traditionally has been that married women in uh, Ethiopia in the 19th century had more rights than they did in the UK, uh, because in the UK, if you were married, you lost all sorts of rights that you didn't in Ethiopia. And uh, again, it's more complicated than that. But I think what I'm trying to say with all of this is, let's not assume that uh, the developed world is any better on gender issues than developing countries. It's more nuanced than that. Um, uh, and 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 fundamentally that there are more commonalities than you would expect. So, you know, FGM in Africa, but affecting many countries in Europe now because of immigration patterns, and also because of labia chosen, uh, you know, individual women deciding to do operations on their uh, private parts because they don't like the looks of them because uh, of the pornography that has taught them to, that they're supposed to look a certain way. Or, you know, early marriage, we associate it with Africa, but quite frankly, there's a lot of early marriage that goes on in the UK and is in law okay in the States. So again, just to challenge a little bit the simplistic um, division between uh, and perceptions that some countries are better than others. And again, that probably... Um is linked to your, so your social status, which um, we talked about earlier. So like Nina and I, and you, and, and having uh, access to education and things like that, like we might not see the problem as big as people that don't live in this country. And similarly to people living in Africa, where you ha we have an emergence of um, lots of very wealthy families. Um, and so those children, like some of my little cousins might not because they've gone to school and they you know and they won't understand the difference that the, the that they're very lucky so they might not see these gender issues as well poverty issues because they have access to education you don't have to be rich 
to have an education, you can be relatively, you know, but as long as you have an education, you're free, you're freer than someone who doesn't have it at all, you know? Um, Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, if we take the Arab world as well, I've heard a lot of women saying, you know, it just depends on the kind of family that you're with. If you have a supportive father, brother, et cetera, husbands, then everything's fine and dandy. The minutes you're in a household where that isn't the case, that's when you see the shutters close and uh, your options just massively constricted. But do you think, as we were talking about um, comparisons between Africa, Europe, or different continents, also different countries, and then also religion comes into this too. And it's a very sensitive um, topic to discuss because how can you say to someone, question someone's religion when that's their life, you know? Um, But it's not questioning the religion per se, but questioning um, the status quo or, or, or a different passage in the Bible or the Quran or the or the whatever but it's often in religion not often but we know that in religion is written by men a lot of the um passages and things how do you how do you generally when having a conversation about this how do you go about it and I see I'm still delicately talking about it and I don't feel that I can always say exactly what I think um, especially to my very religious friends because it it can be insulting and who's what's my place to say when I wasn't brought up religious how can I understand yeah so my responses often start with a quote um, that's associated with Emmeline that when she was asked what God would make of her antics apparently responded I'm sure she would approve (laughs) As soon as you do that, you realize how God is perceived to be a male and the need to challenge that and to challenge the the scriptures. Um, and then, I mean, I think what I would say is it has to come from within the religion. You, 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 somebody from a different religion cannot challenge another one or from a non-religious background. It's just so difficult because beliefs operate from a different way from rationality. And therefore, I think it's much, much more powerful if it's from within your religion. I, I mean, I also have a general concern about fundamentalist religion, whatever religion that is, because the fundamentalist element tends to be restrictive of women right across the, uh, the, um, whichever religions you're talking about, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, whatever. So there's a commonality of when fundamentalism kicks in, it tends to limit women's voices and opportunities. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I was just reading this book at the moment. I I can't remember the name of the author, but it was um, it's about how um, the written word, again, was um, pushed mainly by men and that the written word. And then he compares it's actually written by a man, this book. And it's about um, comparing the kind of goddesses, religions around the picture using pictures so pictures of goddesses and then the written word in religion and the comparison between the two it's really interesting um but i definitely take note that it's i think has to be the change has to come from within yourself and your your religion and not from the outside pressures you know has to come from within um the next question paris do you want to say something just quickly so just and challenge the the narrative that Jesus and the Christian was a white person because that's another another issue but that's for another conversation (laughs) (laughs) definitely um so this is so the next question we were I was going to ask about domestic violence we had already spoken about that previously and we'll put links in the show note if anyone's looking for help 
Uh, but this question, we really, I really wanted to ask you about this because obviously your knowledge of the suffragettes and <laughs> your your family and everything is, it's honestly such an honor to speak to you. And what I wanted to know and what me and Paris were very interested in is if the suffragettes were alive today, if um, what, how do you think they would react to this police bill? going through parliament that is being currently voted on I think as we speak how do you think they would react I think they would be appalled because it gives so much power to the police and the countervailing you know if democracy is all about checks and balances it's the human rights act that's the countervailing um, act but uh, you know I don't know whether anybody's challenging this new legislation using the human rights act but they need to I mean it's just it's tipping the balances. So it means that anybody who wants to make any uh, critique, as soon as, even if it's just one person by the looks of it, um, is, is quashed. It, it gives the government and the police just so much control. I, I, I'm really worried about it. I, and I think they would be as well. They'd be horrified. Yeah, because the police don't represent the people, do they? Exactly. They represent a minority of a certain background. It's the whole point that if the, if the police were totally representative of the wider society, then I would have less problems with it. Yeah. And the fact that they've had so many um, scandals, you know, from Stephen yeah. Lawrence to women, um, racism, um, you know, that they're, they're, how they treat women that go there and say they've been sexually assaulted. It's like, are you sure? You know, this kind of thing. And, and sometimes I, do, I look at the Met and I, I think, is it? worse to be a black person or a woman at this point because I feel like they're, they're just not nice to anybody you know and and they don't I don't know who what they do like other than I don't get what their 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 role is in society anymore I feel and then looking across the pond in America and feeling the same way like you know you have to be so worried for a woman anyway like I think sometimes being a woman is actually probably worse than being someone of color just because you're discriminated across everywhere you know um, but it's just not feeling safe, not feeling that you, you you know you can go to these people if you have any issue, and um, and they're so violent, and it's really uh, a shame. And I've never experienced p- police brutality myself, so but it's just seeing what other people have. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're a privileged man, you would think the police are wonderful. Yeah. So it's because it's back to representation. If we had proper representation. And if the police was imbued with the ideas and values and perspectives of people from a wide range of background, how the police would relate to us would be very different. Absolutely. Also, it's interesting because Pretty Patel, so um, the Home Secretary, this bill basically says if it becomes law, if you want to pr- protest about something, you have to tell them what you're going to protest about. And it's, it's that just defeats the whole point of protest. We wouldn't have the vote if it wasn't for the suffragettes protesting. We're not going to be able to achieve equality as quick as we want to if we can't protest when we want to. Um, the environmental I, movement would have no, you know, uh, extinction rebellion. The more oh my gosh. it would have no, no opportunity whatsoever to, to force the pace of change because that's what protest is about. It's saying this is not good enough. Exactly. And holding people accountable. Um, so this comes then really good to our final question, which is, Helen, if you had a magic wand and could do anything, um, through a fe- how would you change the world through a feminist lens? It would be just, I mean, in a way, there's been a, the, this echo from the beginning of our conversations around equal representation, hasn't it? it kept, it's kept on coming in and, in and out of the conversation. So it would be that. My magic wand would be equal, diverse representation on anybody. 
yeah. of anybody, any systems, any structure. And I think if we had that, you know, within within two years, the changes would be so radical. Yeah, and I think, again, that touches on humility as well, because if you, everyone's represented, people can, you know, uh, women can, you know, understand each other, men can understand each other, people of colour can understand LGBTQ, because, you know, even though we're here, women's right feminists, like, we don't, we can't really understand what LGBT people go through, can we? We can understand the struggle as women, and we and but not fully and, and kind of what provisions they need in the workplace, you know, or in rest, you know, I don't know, because maybe we have to look at it as well as a structural thing, because it's like women, we need to have access to sanitary products, you know, but in certain, in schools, let's say, but men, a man wouldn't know that, would he? The head, the head you know, principal yeah. is a man, you know, to put that there. Whereas if it was a woman, she would know, we need to make sure all our girls have this. And even condoms for boys, would have, they'd have to make, if there was a men, they'd have to make a condom in schools for yeah. boys you know and and we just need yeah people that get get us. we need lived experiences yeah helen this is so honestly so so mind-blowing i'm still just like can't believe we're talking to you this is so exciting and the work that you do is absolutely incredible you you've done and you're doing so much so i really hope that you inspire everyone everyone who's listening to you right now to go out get involved kind of really fight for gender equality no matter who you are because it benefits all of us mm. real pleasure and keep doing what you're doing it's wonderful that's what we need to see <laughs> thank you so much for your time today and um yeah we look forward to hopefully speaking with you soon and um and if there's any uh way we can promote care work or cares international work um we'd be happy for us to just put you know the website link on the show notes just just you know yeah yeah great yeah, please yeah. do. And uh, yeah, and just stay in touch and I will do likewise. Um, by the way, one thing at the beginning, let me send you, I'll send you an updated um, bio. Um, Perfect. A few things that have changed okay. a, a little bit, it's worth mentioning. I mean, I think uh, following me means that then people can follow whatever causes I'm involved in. That's probably the thing. And then just come out and join us on March for Women because it is the most, I know, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll share the March for Women, the, the latest little video from this time, which uses the video from last time. But being out on the street together around International Women's Day in London for anybody who can make it or on social media, that's for me, it just gives me a buzz for the rest of the year because it's just lovely and it's... Solidarity. Exactly. All of that. Amazing. So that would be the thing to do. And I'll share with you the you little video. Yeah. Thank you so much, Helen. You know you got it. Yeah. 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 You ain't got the time. You don't need a man to whine. Tell them where to stand in line and move. They get them a free. They ain't on your mind. Don't you let them steal your shine. They should know to stay behind. So move. Cause the dirty just a rocket, rocket. Put the plug in and it's sucky, sucky Electric, just a pop it, pop it, pop it, pop it Girl, you run it, run it You bring the fire, just a bunny, bunny Party shutting and you done it, done it We're flying and you're
Hello everyone. Um, so just a quick disclaimer, um, we need to update Helen Pankhurst's bio as um, some of her roles have recently changed. So here it goes. So Helen Pankhurst is a women's rights um, and international development practitioner working mainly in Ethiopia for Care International. She is also a trustee of ActionAid and a professor at MMMU and the Chancellor of the University of Suffolk. Helen is a convener for the Centenary Action Group and of GM for Women 2028, and is the granddaughter of Sylvia and great-granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst, both leaders of the British suffragette movement. To reflect on the progress since the struggle for the vote, in 2018, Helen wrote a book called Deeds Not Words, The Story of Women's Rights Then and Now. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening.